After this, I looked, and, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had, had the appearance of an emerald, emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders, dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their head. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and they were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, 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 Lord God, the almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will, they exist and were created. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So around this time of the year, in some of your houses, there may be an elf on a shelf. Perhaps if you're familiar with this, you know that the elf is there to restore some order in the house and curb some of the anticipation that exists in the house. I remember when I was young, I had a calendar that had all of the days of December on the calendar and you would do something with each day. You pull out a treat or a saying or something. But what it was, it was to, to calm me because I was so excited about what was to come on Christmas Day. And I think the elf plays into that a little bit and what we're doing there. In our house, we haven't done the elf very often, but we do have a, a thing called a star, the star, a star from afar. I don't know if you've seen this, but the star is hidden in the house. It's in a different place each day. And the story, the Christmas story, goes along with the star. It's a nice alternative. It's neat. But I think the elf, and perhaps the star, reveals something to us about ourselves. It ties in with Advent. It's that we struggle with waiting. I know that I do. Waiting is an unpopular pastime. Just imagine yourself at the DMV, right? Or maybe consider how many advanced financials there are. No offense if that's your line of work. Or just the number of ways that we can spend money before we even have it. Credit cards. Hashtag credit cards. 
Sometimes we're so focused on what we want to do or what we think we need to do that we, we do fail to see what is right there in front of us. We, we fail to enjoy current blessings because we are living anticipating what is to come, what we are looking forward to. Nothing wrong with looking forward to something, but when it's at the expense of what we have, where we are, what God is calling us to do right now, it's costly. And, and an aside to this, it's really what revelation is about. Not to get ahead of myself, but revelation, John is, is painting this beautiful picture about what the way he sees what is to come and what that is for is to inform what is already true, that Jesus is on the throne and how that should help us today to live in light of what God is doing and has already done. It actually increases our ability to live in the moment with great purpose. Yes, celebrating Advent does mean to be able to wait and to wait well. Last week, we looked at the angel visiting Mary. Can you imagine after that visit, the months of waiting that Mary had to endure with child? To not be overcome with anxiety, I'm imagining the kind of faith, the kind of patient faith that Mary would have had to have. Now, I know nothing of carrying a child, but my lovely wife has done it a few times. And I remember when she was pregnant with Hal, and I don't think I'm going to get in trouble for this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway, because that's fun. But she loves me. Um, <laughs> I remember, darling, when you were pregnant with Howell, he was born in August, and um, it was really hot that summer, wasn't it? And, and you were so swollen, bless your heart. And your tummy was so round, and... She graduated from grad school like at the, like two days before Howell was born. And she, I remember her telling me, I didn't see this because we were at Belmont's Curb Event Center, and, and so we were far away from her. But as she walked across the stage, the dean who handed her her diploma gave her the, ooh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be here right now. Kind of leaning in a little bit to the kind of patient waiting that Leslie Ann was having to do in those last couple of days. The Reverend Peter Gomes spoke of, of patience required in waiting, and he likened it to patience that a farmer must have, that a farmer must bring to his or her work year after year, because patience is the essence of farming. But in no way is the farmer a passive participant in the process. There is work to do literally every day in the waiting for the crop to mature, to come about. Peter Gomes says this, the farmer lives in proximity to two ultimate truths. One is that the harvest is the result of incredible patience. And two is that the harvest is the result of incredible work. Think about that with me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. Whoever does not know the austere blessedness of waiting, that is of hopefully, full of hope in doing without, will never experience the full blessing of fulfillment. For the greatest, most profound, tenderest things in the world, we 
must wait. The harvest. A beautiful baby. And Jesus returning. And while we wait, church family, we worship. Revelation is about worship. And it is a perfect text for Advent. Because it is John's revelation of what is to come in light of what has already happened with Jesus of Nazareth. Chapter 4, John is describing worship. Worship of the very one who is seated on the throne. And I think if you're here this morning, there's a good chance you get that. And you would answer the question correctly. Who is on the throne? It's Jesus. And we know that here. But I'm here to ask us, me at the top of the list, do our lives reflect that we know that? Do our lives reflect that we know that? John's revelation is calling us to worship. Worship the one who is on the throne, who has not yet fulfilled all things in the sense that every tear is is dried. That will happen. It has yet to happen fully, but we are not without God in the meantime. We are not without God in the meantime. John's revelation is calling us to worship together so that we can remind one another of that. Worship as a means of maintaining our conviction that we are indeed in God's very presence this morning and throughout our lives. So we, so we gather here, we show up and I, You know, somebody told me this week that they really enjoy coming to worship and that makes me glad. I want you to want to be here, but I don't want that to be the primary reason that you come. We cannot have a consumerist mentality here. That's not what we are supposed to be. We are to worship. We are to give attention to the living God each and every week with rhythm. We come here and we try to put it together in a way that you will be familiar with what we do. We sing together every week and I love singing with you. We have a pass the peace time. Some of you really love it. Some of you don't love it as much. It's okay. We have a prayer and altar time, which is vitally important that we pray together weekly. Someone opens up God's word and talks of it and allows the Holy Spirit to use them to bless us as a faith family with God's very word. We take what we do and we we let it change us, transform us, as Jacob said, and we go from here. And this is our rhythm. And what matters more than any specific thing that we do together is the rhythm that we are establishing together, that we show up and that we do it, that we worship. Revelation is calling us to worship. And we do it regularly because it establishes rhythm. It helps us to be patient as we wait upon the Lord. And I have to tell you that I am sad that the latest Pew research reveals that in mainline and evangelical churches in the United States of America, the average attendance for a worshiper is 1.7 times a month. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm the consumer who wants to be leading the group that's, you know, the pews are full and we're, I mean, that would be great. 
And I'm saying that because of what 1.7 times a month testifies to. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. You're here. I get that. There's no rhythm in that. It needs to be more often. Because it's so sporadic, it harms our patience. It harms our waiting. It harms the body. Now, whatever that rhythm looks like is not my point, that it's prescribed or has to be a certain way. But there has to be rhythm. You have to be worshiping, church family. It's not always perfect. Fred Craddock says you can't fight the technology. That's the first rule. And we've, you know, we couldn't find a mic that worked at the start of the service. And that was my fault. I didn't check the announcement mic. My fault. And I'm so sorry. But I do like that this is a comfortable environment where those things are okay. Where we are free to kind of give one another grace. Do we, as a people of faith, gather? And are we blessed by our gathering, by God's presence, to go out and do God's mission in the world? Does that define our worship? I hope so. Or... Is our gathering a pathetic and sometimes desperate charade in which people attempt to get God to pay attention to them or do something for them? That's tough. I'm not trying to offend us, trying to challenge us. Too often it's the latter. What I'm really asking today is where is Jesus in our home? Maybe we're looking for the elf on the shelf somewhere when we go around the house. But if somebody were looking for Jesus, where would they find him? Is he on the throne? Will you imagine a throne with me right now? Just imagine a throne. Big, tall, a lot of colors, a lot of gold. It's probably sitting in the middle of the room you're imagining. I would think. And probably somewhere in the center of the house or the castle that you're imagining the room in, that you're imagining the throne in. Worship is designed to be centering. And a throne centers authority. Do you know the word throne appears in Revelation in nearly every chapter? A total of 40 times. It's only in the rest of the New Testament 15 times. This is a major theme. In Revelation, the throne. And John is telling us, he is begging us to realize that Jesus is to be at the center of our lives. Worship helps center us around the throne and it helps to keep Jesus, who sits on the throne, at the center of our lives. Failure to worship, the 1.7 times a month deal. It, it, it chips away at Jesus being at the center of our lives. And like, I don't believe that you're going to be okay with not being centered. That's not the way we are as people. We, we seek balance. We're going to try to be balanced. We're going to try to find the center in something. So if it's not our community of faith gathered around the throne in which Jesus sits on, you're going to search for it somewhere else. And it is going to let you down every time. So I ask, if it's not Jesus on the throne, what does center you? 
Because without it being Jesus, I'm here to tell you that I believe you are at the mercy, that I am at the mercy of every advertisement, every clickbait article that we come across. Eugene Peterson says it this way, without worship, which leads to Jesus being at the center of our lives, without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. But worship gives us direction. It gives us purpose. It centers us. Who is on the throne in our lives? Here, I actually think it's, it's one of two options. It's either Jesus in my life or it's me. Is it you in your life? Are you the master and commander of your own universe? Back in chapter three, back in chapter three, John addresses the folks in Laodicea. So Revelation is, it, it's, it's a very complex book we talked about. It is prophecy. And the thing about prophecy is prophecy is less someone saying what God intends to do in the future. And it's more, a prophet more speaks for what God is doing now, the way things are now. And Revelation does that in light of what God will do in the future. And all of the allusions that John uses in Revelation, which are incredible, case in point in chapter four that we read earlier, do come directly from the Old Testament in John's study of the Hebrew scriptures, which is incredible. But the book is also a letter to seven particular churches. And in being a letter to seven particular churches, it's a letter by extension to the whole church including us today. So what John has to say specifically to these seven churches, including Laodicea, which is the last one that he addresses, definitely can apply to us today. And he's addressing the church in Laodicea. And you may recognize what he says to the church in Laodicea because it could be familiar to you because this is where John talks about lukewarmness, tepidness. The folks in Laodicea are neither hot nor cold. They are somewhere in the middle. And being somewhere in the middle, when you taste that kind of water, it causes you to vomit it right out of your mouth. This is what he says in verse 17 about those in Laodicea. For you say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. There was nothing about the Laodiceans' understanding of themselves that drove them to their knees to seek God's provision. They were completely self-sufficient, at least they thought they were. And where there is no poverty, where there's no understanding of need, there is no community. Because community thrives when things are held in common. But the Laodiceans were rich and they were wealthy and they had no need of anything. So John calls them wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. And this is the reality of any of us for any of us who put ourselves on the throne seat. We rely on others for things that we just don't want to do, things that are beneath us. When we sit in the throne seat, our God is effectively money. Scripture calls it mammon. It's serving ourselves. And Jesus says you can't have two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other or vice versa. So Jesus is on the throne or we are. C.S. Lewis said it like this when he addressed his audience in mere Christianity, he singled out the great sin, which he called pride, which I agree with him. And he said, pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Whew. 
Other vices may sometimes bring people together, but pride always means enmity, which means hostility. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity between man and God. You see, deep down, we long to be at the center. We long for, for God to validate us there. And in doing so, it's often the case that we don't excuse God from the room necessarily, but God is also in the room with us while we sit on the throne. And you know what that reduces God to? The help. We call on God when we need God, but we're at the center. We're on the throne in our own home. November 29th, 2003, 6 p.m., Leslie Ann and I were married. That was a couple days ago, 16 years ago. And I, one of the most important things that we covenanted together that day were the intentions for our home, that our marriage and by extension our home would be a place where Christ would be at the center of everything. We fall woefully short of that far too often. But we desired and still desire for Christ to be at the center of our home and our lives. Our home is to be a home where God is honored. Our home is to be a home where we spend time with God because we realize that God's with us in our presence. We worship God together in our home. We, we treat one another and we've, we've grown since that day. 300%. Long to treat one another as each person is the very image of God, made in the very image of God. We long for our home to be a home where the front porch is a welcoming place, where you are welcome to come and sit with us, to come into our home and be with us, because we long for our home to be a home where the doors are open, where the table is set and the place settings are so flexible. Verse 20 in chapter 3. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Where's Jesus in your home, folks? Where is he? Is he still knocking? Can you even hear the knock anymore? There was a certain church in which the young people, as Christmas approached, wanted somebody in the church to play Santa Claus for the annual Christmas party, which went to benefit disadvantaged children in the area. So they went to one man who was a leader in the church. He was a banker. He was very close with his money, but he was very faithful to the church. And they went to him and said, will you please be Santa Claus in our Christmas party? He said, I guess so. It was a moment of weakness. You know, they didn't ask him because he was necessarily generous or had any of the qualities that we assume Santa Claus had. They asked him because he looked like he'd be a good Santa Claus. Fifth part. So he said, sure. But as the time for the party approached, he got nervous and he growled about it at supper every night. And his wife looked at him and said, honey, you're really taking this too seriously. He was saying, I can't be Santa Claus. She said, sure you can. You just put on that silly suit and you go and you, you do it. It's no big deal. And the night arrived for the party and he was so nervous, he could hardly button his suit. And he said, God, he prayed. He said, God, help me to be a good Santa Claus. His wife heard him praying and she said, you've got to relax. What is wrong with you? So he went to the church and he played Santa Claus and 
By the end of the party, he had nearly pledged his entire bank account to those children. His wife looked at him perplexed. She said, what are you doing? Nobody expected you to really be Santa Claus. Revelation 3, 20. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him. And he with me, verse 21. See, I stand. I just read that. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I also conquered and sat down with my father who is on his throne. You're invited to sit on the throne right next to Jesus, but you cannot get it out of order. We live in a world where it is easier for us to just be on the throne ourselves. And the reality is, is that Jesus is on the throne and Jesus demands everything from us. The man who thought he was really supposed to be Santa Claus actually got it right. There's work to do, church family. In this season of waiting, we are called to do anything but just bide our time until Jesus returns. Your lives matter. And you can only live, I can only live into who God is calling us to be, to connect with the mission of God that goes before us in the world, that seeks to and has already begun to make things as God originally intended for them to be. We can only participate in that when Jesus is on the throne. I was talking with one of our faithful saints not too long ago. She doesn't have, she knows she's, she's older. has a few years left to live. Who knows how long? And she said to me, I want it to count. I want to know where I can serve. I want the time I have left to count. That's how we wait. With patience, but with conviction that God would help it count. Where is Jesus in your home? Is he, church family, on the throne? Let's pray.